Have you ever had that experience of doing a, a jigsaw puzzle and you're getting to the really exciting bit where there's only maybe a few pieces left to go, only to discover that that final piece is gone, missing. You know, I'm talking not even in the box. So you've got the whole rest of the puzzle done. 999 pieces are all there and joined up. But there's this one empty space where that, that final piece needs to go. That's very frustrating. Because even though you can see most of the puzzle, most of the picture, you can see 99.9% of the picture, somehow it's, that, it's the blank space. Somehow it's the gap that you can't help noticing all the time. Now that's pretty much where we're at to today in the book of Isaiah. That's a little hard to appreciate, I know, because this is now the 20th Bible talk on Isaiah this year. Ever since January, we've been jumping in and out of Isaiah as the year has gone on. So it's a bit difficult to keep in our heads, isn't it? But really, at this point of the book, it's like a picture puzzle, and 99% of the picture is there. But there is still a very critical piece still to come. Now, of course, Isaiah is not a picture puzzle. Uh, As we've discovered as the year's gone on, uh, Isaiah is about a plan. It's about God's plan to transform the world. And amongst other things, this is a plan to punish sin because God's holiness, God's sense of justice demands that sin rightly be punished. But also within his plan, God intends to somehow cleanse sin, remove sin. Out of his love for people, God also has plans to make it possible for repentant people, people who are ashamed of their sin, people who are regretful of their sin, God has it in his plan that they will have their sins washed away. And so this is, as we've noticed repeatedly, this is a grand plan. And there's been a lot about this plan so far that we've been able to appreciate. And yet, there's still a critical piece of the plan missing. God has yet to explain how he is going to wash sin away. I mean, up until now, he's certainly been saying it's part of his plan. Ever since chapter 1, he declared, quote, that though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. In chapter 6, Isaiah himself had his own guilt washed away and his sin, we were told, was atoned for. In chapter 40, God comforted Israel with the news that sin would be paid for in full. Wonderful statements about sin being removed. We just haven't been told how. And it's actually important that we be told how because we've got a vested interest in this. Because we're sinners. Read an interesting and sort of funny story the other day about a Hungarian far right political re- uh, leader called Senard Segetin. Senard Segetin is notorious for being anti Semitic. He's, he's always ranting about how terrible Jews are and how terribly elite Jews are. And he's, always, he's famous for comments about how Jews are wrecking Hungary. Well, Paul Segetin's political career is now in tatters because he's discovered that his grandparents on his mother's side were, you guessed it, Jews, which under Jewish law makes him a Jew as well. And so the wonderful irony is that it turns out that the very people he's been ranting against for so long, he turns out to be one of them. Sin does that to us. 
So often we are, we are critical of all those bad people out there, all those sinners. In the Bible, God consistently says, we're all them. We are all guilty of some extent ignoring God and not giving him the respect or the obedience he deserves, giving God the silence. We're all sinners. And, you say, and so you see, it's not an academic question in Isaiah. It's not academic of how does God cleanse sinners. It's the issue of how does God cleanse us. How's he going to cleanse me with the stuff I've done, with the things I've thought? Well, in today's reading, in arguably one of the greatest passages in the entire Bible, God explains how. The missing piece of God's grand plan is finally supplied. And it's astonishing. It is a masterpiece. It's all got to do with the mysterious servant who we've actually met a few other times in Isaiah, but who again steps out unannounced into full view. Chapter 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. This is now the fourth time this servant has appeared to us in Isaiah. Each time it's the same. He appears out of nowhere, disappears just as quickly into the text. Despite these fleeting appearances so far, we've discovered some pretty important things about him. This servant, we've been told, is going to have a key role in God's plans to transform the world. This servant, we've already been told, is greatly, greatly cared for by God. This servant, we've already been told, is going to be involved in establishing God's justice to all the nations. This servant, we've already been told, will bring salvation to the ends of the world. And so we've already been told certain things about him, but this fourth servant song, which is what it's sometimes called, this fourth song is the most elaborate, the most detailed, the most profound of all of the passages about the servant. This is the jewel in the crown of Isaiah. The way the passage works is that it's really quite structured. It starts and it finishes by emphasising the exaltation of the servant, that in God's eyes, this servant is to be praised. And so, for example, in verse 13, which I just read, did you notice? See, my servant will act right wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Or again, in a couple of verses of time, verse 15, it talks of kings shutting their mouths because of him. In other words, this servant is going to be seen to be so exalted that even the powerful ones of this world will be dumbstruck. They will be so utterly amazed at how great this servant turns out to be that even kings will be left speechless. So it starts off talking about the exaltation of the servant, but then that emphasis drops away pretty well for a lot of the passage, only to reappear in the last few verses. For example, look at how the very last verse begins. Look at chapter 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Or the start of the previous verse, verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. And be satisfied. And so you see there's this sort of opening and closing emphasis 
on this servant being honoured by God. He's going to go through a hard time, we'll get to that in a tick, but ultimately he will be exalted. He will be esteemed, he will be distinguished, he will be made superior. Which is a little curious, because as you then move further into the song, from both ends move into the song, what is then emphasised is that despite being exalted by God, he was in fact rejected by man. And so, for example, look at chapter 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with sufferings, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Look down at verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Now we've had some hints in the previous servant songs that this servant might not count, that his life may not be an easy one, but nothing prepares us for the level of rejection described in these verses. Despised, sorrows, suffering, oppressed, afflicted, so disfigured as to be unrecognisable. And as the words and the descriptions mount up, the treatment of this servant takes on terrifying proportions. It's made all the more intense by the fact that in this passage, the servant never once speaks. Unlike all the other servant songs in Isaiah, where he does speak, he declares things about himself. In this passage, never utters a word. He is exactly as he is described, silent as a lamb to the slaughter. We are, of course, reading about Jesus Christ, aren't we? We've noticed that already. Every time the servant has been mentioned in Isaiah, we've noticed that when Jesus did appear hundreds of years after this was written, when Jesus did appear on earth, he went out of his way to self-consciously show that he is this servant. And so here in this passage, we are, we are seeing echoes of the terrifying treatment that Jesus would eventually face from his own people a treatment most brutally seen in the events surrounding his crucifixion. When Jesus had to endure one of his own disciples betraying him, others of his disciples denying they even knew him, and then there was the mockery of a false arrest, a rigged trial rushed through in the middle of the night, Strangers standing up, making up lies about him. And then came the flogging, which, if it was your standard Roman Roman flogging, would have left his back shredded and probably left some of his internal organs exposed to the elements. And then there was the crowd, chanting for him to be executed while a convicted murderer be released. And then after all of that, he was hoisted into the air, 
nailed to a cross. And as he hung there fighting for his breath, fading in and out of consciousness, listening to the sound of his own pulse in his ears, Jesus would also have heard insults, laughter, mocking, soldiers gambling over his last remaining possession. For what? What had the guy ever done other than try and help people? Well, in our passage, Isaiah tells us for what. Because you see how this song's fitting? It opens and closes, emphasising the exhortation of the servant of God. It then works in from both directions, emphasising that the servant was rejected by men, though. And it's all zeroing in, zeroing in on the centre three verses. For these are verses which explain that the servant is exalted by God and did go through all this rejection because he was substituting himself for his people. Let me read you the middle three verses of the passage. Verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I don't know how to explain the magnitude of these verses. The suffering servant in whom God delights substitutes himself for sinners. Did you notice the interplay between all the he's and the ours through those verses? He took our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. In other words, all the sufferings and the death that was inflicted on this servant, they are the sufferings and the death that we ourselves should have gone through. He suffered our punishment in our place. He was stricken by God instead of us. Last Sunday in England, Karina Menzies was walking home from school with her two young children when a white van careered out of control towards them. Karina stepped into the path of the van, screamed and threw her children out of the way as best she could. The van hit her head on. She was killed outright. By her sacrifice... Karina saved her children's lives. That is what the servant did. It is what Jesus did as the servant on the cross. When he died on the cross, he stepped in front of God's judgment and he sacrificed himself in the place of his people. He substituted himself for us. It is an astonishing thing. In fact, as Heroic as Karina Menzies' sacrifice was, Jesus is even more so. 
Karina acted to save her children who presumably loved her and cared for her as their mum. Jesus sacrificed himself for rebels who really didn't want to have anything to do with him. Karina's death was a tragic accident that should never have happened. Jesus deliberately set himself to go to the cross. It was the entire reason he came. Going to the cross was the mission that drove everything Jesus did. He wasn't caught up in a terrible accident. Step by step, every waking day, he willingly went to the cross, knowing full well what he would have to go through, and but also knowing full well that it needed to be done. Because he had come as the servant. And here is the missing piece to God's plan in Isaiah. You know that plan, that one to pardon repentant people? You know that plan to wash sins as white as snow? Here is how God is going to do it. The servant is the key. He substitutes himself for us and he is punished in our place. And all the things that you have ever done wrong, all of them, You got stuff you've done wrong? Did you like it removed? Is there stuff in your life you'd actually die of embarrassment if just the other people in this room knew about them? Because of this servant, they can be gone. And passage after passage in the New Testament returns to this. Jesus himself says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Apostle Peter tells his readers that Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Over and over and over again, the Bible keeps coming back to the same point. At the cross, Jesus Christ died as our substitute. Some people see the cross as primarily an act of love, which is an example for us to follow, that it should spur us on to love one another. Other people see the cross primarily as a terrible injustice that should spur us on to fight for social justice in this world. Friends, those things might be partly true in themselves. They are woefully inadequate at explaining what the cross is all about. Jesus Christ, the Lord's servant, in whom he delights, died as our substitute. And that is why here at DPC we are overtly, unapologetically and will frequently talk about the cross. I mean, every now and then someone says to us, some occasionally, usually a newcomer or a visit, they'll say, boy, you guys are on about sin and the cross a lot. As if there's something else we should be on about. There's not. The death of Jesus on the cross, the substitute of the Lord's servant for his people. It's not just the central thought of today's passage. It is the centerpiece of God's plan to save humanity. This is how our sin is able to be washed as white as snow. In fact, it's not just a centerpiece. It's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece on a whole number of levels. Let me just pick one. 
perhaps the one that resonates most loudly in today's passage. And that is the sacrifice of God's servant for his people. It's a masterpiece because being saved in this way, it brings to us an extraordinary sense of assurance. Because it's not about us anymore. It's about what Jesus, the suffering servant, has done. And so you don't have to worry anymore about whether you're good enough to get into heaven. You don't have to agonise anymore over whether or not you've done enough good things. You don't have to be weighed down with guilt about things you'd wish you'd never done. No, no, we are saved. Our sins are washed away by what Jesus has done. His sacrifice in our place. Which is why Isaiah says in verse 5, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. We have been brought peace. In other words, things between us and God, because of this servant, has been sorted out once for all. And we are able to approach him with ease and with confidence and with intimacy. See, when my kids come home from school or back from uni, they don't knock at the door and wait to be let in. Uh, They don't stand awkwardly in the lounge room waiting to be offered a seat. Uh, What happens is they let themselves in, they swarm through the house, they go to the fridge, they see what's on offer, they collapse wherever, they relax to escape the trauma of study. They enter with ease and confidence and relaxation. And that is what we are able to do with God in complete comfort. We can approach God and relax. And you know what? The God of all the universe, he loves it that way. He loves to be that involved in your life. That's why he planned for his servant, Jesus Christ, to substitute himself for us. Can you believe it? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. I'll pray. Father, we are just left to thankfully, humbly be in awe of what you have done for us. Thank you that your servant, your son, was willing to leave your side in heaven and to go through what these verses describe for us. Father, thank you that you have brought us peace because of your servant. Amen.